The information in this podcast is current on the day of recording. It is general advice only and does not take your personal situation into account. It may not be suitable for you. Participants in this podcast may also own the stocks discussed. For a full list of current recommendations and stocks owned by staff, members of Intelligent Investor can visit www.intelligentinvestor.com.au. Welcome to Stock Take. My name is Gaurav Sodhi. Joining me today is analyst James Winhouse. Welcome, James. Hello, Gaurav. And joining us also is analyst Mickey Mordek. Hi, Mickey. Thanks, Gaurav. Wow, we have a three-person team back on deck again, so no more awkward interactions. We're just two more people. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> so we're really happy to have you both here. Um, let's get straight into it. Gents, we've been writing about Webjet um, recently, and I had a look at the company after JG has had a look at it, and also our um, small cap analyst um, Alex has had a look at it as well. This is an interesting business. It's, it's a controversial one because we've been wrong about it over the years. We've written several reviews about Webjet, sort of scratching our heads, thinking, how does this business model actually work? Because to sum it up, it's a collection of, well, the Australian business anyway, the um, actual flight business is a collection of times and flights from all different airlines and it brings it up on the screen and if you click your the flight you want to take from the Webjet site, they'll charge you an additional fee or you can go over to the actual airline and book it through the airline and pay no additional fee. And so this has always been a source of, um, well, ludicrous l lunacy for me really about why anyone would use the product um, as anything other than a search tool. Um, but clearly, plenty of people does. Revenue is strong and it's been growing for many, many years. It's, it's generated lots of profits. It's actually been a terrific performing business over a long time and uh, proved the skeptics wrong. They've now introduced a second business, a, a business called Webbeds. And this is a, a business that, um, that digs into global hotel inventory and then sells that inventory onto um, other travel agents around the world. And they call that uh, a B2B business. And this business has been growing, again, really rapidly, um, generates really good um, margins, um, very good returns. And management claim they've only just scratched the surface of the potential addressable market. So they're looking for a lot more potential growth. There's a $50 billion market, apparently. They've gone from nowhere to being the global number two in this space, and this is the source of a lot of optimism. Um, and if you're going to build an investment case for Webjet, this is the area that is most interesting about it. So we had a look at this business and specifically on that Webbeds area, and I came away relatively unimpressed. Um, look, I, I, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's an okay business, and if it works out, it'll work out really, really well. But looking at all the growth coming from Webbeds, it's all come from acquisitions, and the business has grown solely because they've poured more capital into it. And for me, there's nothing really special about that. Anyone can grow a business if they're willing to spend money on it. Any competitor could have done what Webbeds has done. Um, the fact that they were the first to do it, does that make it better or more interesting? For me, probably not. And, and thinking deeply about the competitive position, Webbeds, well, let's get into this um, a little bit more. James, I'd like your thoughts on this, actually. Um, I've, I've been a bit skeptical about the Webbed's competitive position. What's your view on it? Would you agree or would you disagree? Well, to be honest, Gaurav, um, uh, if I can just jump back a bit. For yep. me, um, 
uh, recommending and buying and understand and um, looking at a company for members is all about getting comfortable. And so for me, I, I looked at um, Webjet and. Um, yeah, I, I can get some comfort with the basic flights business, and we we sort of. I think Alex made a good point in his article that that um, that business is okay, and it's used for convenience purposes, and people are happy to pay for that convenience and for the fact they don't need to fill out a whole lot of um, online forms to to get their flights. But I, I think you're right. There is that I, I struggled to get to terms with the B two B web um, uh, bed banking business, the the hotel aggregation business, and and I still don't understand it. I'm happy to admit that I don't. I don't get it. I can see, and as you say, they've been basically buy, buying and consolidating uh, the market there. But they st- it's still a very, very fragmented market. And it seems that the current managing director um, is that's his history. So he joined the business, um, joined the the flights business, and basically then started building this B two B web web. Uh, web I'm actually saying web bed banking business. <laughs> um, web beds. Yes, web beds. Yes. And and to me, that um, that business is it, it's still we we still don't know. Um, how it's going to turn out, and to me, that's the thing. I'm just not comfortable with it. I, I couldn't get comfortable with it. I don't know where it's where it's um, where the growth is coming from. It's, it it seems to me, as you say, mainly acquisitive growth. And I just thought, yeah, I, I don't really understand this business. It looks okay. The business overall looks okay. I'm not saying it's the worst business in the world. I just couldn't get to grips with it. And for me, that just ruled out. It, for me, the, the sorry, uh, sorry, just to yeah. clarify. So, mm. isn't the idea behind it that if you're looking to book um, some accommodation uh, you know for and your your business then you go to this um, website and they have accommodation in lots of different places basically and they aggregate that information from um, lots of different suppliers it's a it's a behind the scenes of business it's not like a, a, a what if or a um, Expedia where you actually uh, as a consumer go to um, a hotel website and can and they're the hotel aggregator it's sort of it's the it's the it's, it's basically providing services to travel agents both online and offline um, so it's it's like the the system that um, that those travel agents would use when they're um, sitting behind the desk asking you oh what sort of hotel do you want um, so yeah it's a it's a as a b2b so it's mm. like that, okay. but yeah, but it, it's it's. I mean, and, and and I don't understand where all the margin comes in that, yeah. and where you know where why that is such an important um, important thing. I, I don't see why that can't be disaggregated at some stage. So there's just things about the business that um, that raise questions for me. The margin was the big question for me. If this was actually a more conventional margin wholesaler, and that's what this business is, it's effectively a wholesaler. They buy, um, well. They do buy, but they don't actually pay for um, bedding um, from hotels. Uh, sorry, hotel rooms from hotels, and then they supply that to um, third parties, and, and they sell it. And those third parties then sell it to the retail channel. So they're in a middleman, and yet the margins are sort of thirty-five percent or so, which is extraordinary in an era where middlemen are being squeezed in every industry. Here lies one reporting growing and um, huge margins. I, I just found that quite disarming and without a comprehensive explanation about how those margins are sustainable, I, I just don't think we can recommend a business like that. Or, you know, there's so many opportunities on the internet. Oh, there are so many opportunities on the stock market. Um, there are so many companies to, to pour your attention into. If you hit a, a wall with one, um, I, I don't think we have to come up with an explanation or, or an answer for that one straight away. We can sort of put it in the corner and think about it a bit more or come back to it at another stage um, when we've had a bit of enlightenment. 
Mm. And we know, we know we've, we've written three articles on, on yeah. uh, Webjet. I know, we know that's been confusing for members, so we do apologise for that. And we know Alex has got it in his fund, or he did when he wrote the article. So I assume he probably still does. So that, that, and that's just the way of it is. And in a fund, it can, the position can be managed okay, and he's comfortable with some things that I wasn't. And Alex made some great points about management and things that I think make yeah. sense. It's not the worst business in the world. And for people who own it, we're not saying sell it. We Just personally, Gaurav and I couldn't get comfortable with some of those aspects, and that's okay. And it's also it's a different burden of proof as well for a newsletter business and a fund. Indeed. Um, it reminds me a little bit of, you know, the civil case versus a criminal case. A different burden of proof is required. Um, so for us to put a buy on something, what we're, we're saying is it's, it's good enough for almost everyone's portfolio. And we have to think about tens of thousands of people. Um, who are building portfolios on the back of advice that we're giving. Um, and it's very different to having a small position in your fund that you're able to manage quietly without um, upsetting other people's portfolios too much. It's, it's two very different things, and we, I would view those as um, almost two separate decision streams. Um, so the, the amount of information we need to get comfortable is a little bit different to what a fund might require to get comfortable. Sorry, Mickey, go ahead. Oh, no, th I was just going to say, well, when I, when I heard about the business, the, the only thing I could think of was, um, you know, so if you're a travel agent and you're trying to book um, accommodation, then you'd want somebody who's got the most uh, availability of inventory and you'd also want somebody who's got a global reach. And I, su I suppose from that perspective, it almost makes sense to make acquisitions so that you could get that scale. And then, so on that side, if you can get the scale, then potentially you can... Um, you know, attract more travel agents. And then on the other side, if you're selling the inventory um, to web beds, you want to be with somebody who's got the greatest distribution. So there could be like some sort of scale advantages in that business that could give that some some edge over time potentially. Absolutely, but and that's sort of sort of the, the investment case, isn't it? And uh, you know, if, if you think that's that's a good reason for for them making acquisitions, then yeah, that's it certainly makes sense that they should get bigger in that space. It just sounds very easy, Mickey. And yeah. and there are there are four big competitors in this space. We know that, and it just sounds very simplistic to sort of say, let's just get bigger, and that'll make us better because they're buying these things very cheaply. And it tells, uh, and the fact that they're buying their targets very cheaply tells you that the other three big players aren't doing this. And it just makes me a little bit uncomfortable about why, if this is such a great idea, and I agree, the logic sounds compelling. And that's mm. the, the, the reason we went back and had a look at it, because the logic does sound competing, compelling. But why are they the only ones doing it? I, I would almost feel better if there was more competition for these acquisitions mm. and the prices were higher. But they're buying them at sort of four or five times earnings. And, and that, that was exactly the thing that worried me. The yeah. Thomas Cook thing is, is right. when, when I looked at it a year ago and I looked at it, I thought the Thomas Cook, it looks weird. And I, I didn't understand at the time what was wrong. I couldn't understand it. And, and a year later, we find Thomas Cook's gone bankrupt and they have to write that acquisition off. And I, went, I actually went and had a look at when I was overseas and Thomas Cook collapsed. Right. And I actually went and had a look at Thomas Cook. And, and it was pretty clear that that business has been in trouble for years now. Mm -hmm. So it just, it just made me think, well, okay, if Webjet's buying this thing when other people know that that Thomas Cook sort of not doing that well, just suggests to me maybe they haven't done their due diligence properly. and They're so more interested in growth yeah. than in, in sustainable yeah, growth. that's right. Yeah, and the incenti incentives are really marked as well. I mean, the management team is incentivized just to get big really quick. Mm. Um, Mickey, any other points about Webjet? No, no, not really. Yeah, no. so to summarize, it's... You know, it's a potentially interesting idea, but we just haven't been comfortable with some of the risks. And in a newsletter business, 
the burden of proof is much higher than I think in, than in a fund inclusion. So hence the decision to sort of look um, not to um, buy it or to cover it ongoingly. We're just going to leave it for a while and we'll keep an eye on it, right, James? That's exactly right. So how are you feeling, James? Your toes tapping? <laughs> <laughs> There's music. There's movement. We're, we're about to get passion on. Yeah, we're to get it on. It was a long time ago. <laughs> if you're wondering what we're talking about, you can read um, JG's review on Domino's and all will be explained. Now, JG, speaking of Domino's, they had their investor day recently. I think the AGM you mentioned earlier is this week at some stage. That's right. Um, talk us through what you learned about the investor day. I believe this was a particularly um, important one. Yeah, the investor is quite interesting because um, the Domino's has been um, criticised by the investment community, I suppose, for a couple of things. And the first thing that they've been criticised for is, or what people are worried about is probably the best way of putting it, is the um, is the store splitting strategy that they've been talking about. And so they explained a lot more about that. And it was it was just quite interesting to have, um, and clearly, you know, we always take, take these into the grain of salt. We don't believe everything management tells us. But they did provide a little bit more colour on how um, on how they they split their stores and why they're doing it and so on. They call it fortressing, which is a little bit of a gimmicky term, but but it does make sense in a way because what they're trying to do is is get closer to the customer, um, and it just just means they're um, effectively um, trying to put more stores out there. Um, and 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 one of the big things that for me was that w- uh, with splitting stores, what they tend to do, they get a lot more um, carry out customers or takeaway customers. So people who are much closer to the store, they actually will therefore walk and collect their pizza rather than pay a delivery fee. So clearly, if you're closer to the store, you get far more um, people who come in and collect their pizzas. And that, that, uh, that actually is actually a, a massive part of the store splitting strategy. So is this, an, is this a strategy to actually expand the market and to drive out competitors? Or is this a way just to get store numbers to meet a predetermined target? Well, of course, that is a risk and they keep upgrading their store their store guidance mm-hmm. and saying, for example, we want to do 1,200 stores in Australia, which currently has 825. And I think, you know, we, we've I've been saying pretty clearly the Australian market is um, mature. But you're absolutely right, Gaurav. I mean, don't forget, if you, if you go on your local um, menu log or Just Eats or whatever, you'll see there are a lot of mum and dad pizza places still out there. Mm-hmm. And so there's, there's still a lot of them out there. And to be honest, Dominic, is going to try and kill them. <laughs> um, that, 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 that is that is a fact. I mean, this is what happens with big companies as they try and uh, put their competitors out of business. Um, and I had a look at the uh, Domino's US, Domino's um, Domino's US. They, they sort of talk about that basically and say there's a lot of, um, they call them mum and pop um, mm-hmm. uh, pizza places out there and they think that they, they're subscale and that they're, they're, they're struggling. Um, they're struggling with the rise of the aggregators and that they'll eventually be put out of business. So that's going to happen in Domino's in, Domino's in Australia as well. Yeah, I must admit, I always struggled with understanding what the, what's it called again? Fortressing. Fortressing, yes. I always struggled with the fortressing concept. I didn't understand how putting more stores in would make franchisees happy or how that would um, increase growth in the business. But after reading your review, hearing from management, I get it now. It actually sounds like a reasonably good idea. Are you aware of other franchises that also do a similar thing? It seems to me, just anecdotally, it it's a seems like a classic McDonald's play. Um, not that they have delivery, but they just the the um, area, um, the catchment area for something like McDonald's just keeps on shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. 
Is this happening across the board um, in the takeaway industry? Uh, I think that, that's possibly right. I'm not sure I'd, I need to think about that more to provide a comment. But what I think is most interesting about Domino's compared to McDonald's, for example, is that you can't put a McDonald's everywhere because um, they're, they're large and they're, they tend to require car parking or that mm. sort of thing. With the Domino's, you, mean, if you look, you just think about your local store, it's tiny. Mm. They can put that in any local shop front. So you can wedge it you know, in your local, what used to be a corner store. Um, you can put them anywhere. And so, um, so it's a bit. Uh, you can saturate the market with with stores, and I think that makes a bit of a difference. Um, whereas, so and that, that that actually means that if if you want something quick for for dinner, um, you can say, okay, well, pizza's good enough. I'll, I'll go around the corner, and I can be eating my eating my pizza in twenty minutes. Mm. Whereas, you know, with with McDonald's, unless you're right near a store, you're going to need to drive there. You're going to need to, um, you know, um, find parking. So it's going to take a lot longer. So I think the the Domino's a little bit different. It's sort of it's a, it's a as, as they say, you know, they. they they're dealing with hungry people. Pe- people want their pizza in, in, in 10 or 15 minutes. They don't want to wait. So it's sort of, it, they're, they're just playing to their market, really. Their market really wants uh, fast, hot pizza. We've discussed this before, but pizza is uniquely suited for delivery in a way that burgers and chips are certainly not. Yes. Um, and I, I almost think the competitors are the mom and pop stores more than they are other things on the um, Uber Eats list. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Well, the other thing I noticed was, uh, I was just going through the Deliveroo app, um, the other day and I just saw Domino's on there so it's not like they're not actually taking advantage of that avenue as well but um, yeah so it's not it's not as if that's necessarily going to put them out of business or something like that like some of the maybe concerns around that have been and that's a nice segue into my next point about the uh-huh. aggregators Mickey because yeah that's exactly right they, they are they, they don't I mean, with with um, going onto the aggregators like Deliveroo and Uber Eats, um, they they will go on those platforms, but you generally don't get um, discounts. So if, if I'm looking for a Domino's pizza, um, I'll look for um, the codes which give you you know the free garlic bread or free drink or whatever as well, because it ends up being a better deal. Um, whereas they don't really you don't really get that on the uh, on the on the actual apps. So they make they make good money out of the aggregation apps, and they also um, they do all the delivery. So so they still have control. Domino's still has control of the customer and um, and I think if you are dare I say it, a true Domino's customer, you're probably not going to use the the aggregator apps anyway because you know what you want. You know that there's a Domino's, you know, uh, two, two or three or four minutes walk away and you can go and pick up that pizza if you want or if you know don't feel like leaving your, your sofa, you can get it delivered and you know it's going to come quickly because if you're on um, Uber Eats and you're going to order a, you know, a chicken parmigiana or something, you know it's going to take 45 minutes to get to you. So it's, it's quite a different type of experience, I think. I also am, I question how valuable the Uber Eats or the aggregator channel is for Domino's because when you line up Domino's on a list with all its competitors... Who thinks, oh, yum, I must have Domino's? I, I just don't think that that's not really the market there. Yeah. They're not, they're not the, the, the food of choice no. when you're comparing meals. It's, it's the motivation for having Domino's is completely different. I agree, yeah. Um, so it doesn't actually concern me that much. Um, I, I was very concerned about the aggregators at first, but just um, talking to JG, listening to the company a little bit, um, I should disclose that I actually own Domino's. Um, I, I'm actually pretty comfortable now with the aggregators and I think it actually might be a chance to knock out a lot of um, the mum and pop stores. The aggregators, if, if you think they're hurting Domino's, they are, must be killing the $20 pizza. Uh, um, crust, for example, um, has been, uh, everyone thought it was a great business at first and it's been really awful and, and I think a big reason of that big reason for that is the um, the impact of the aggregators that's the kind of business that gets targeted and hit um, from maneuver eats 
Absolutely. So, James, what are the risks from here? I mean, the share price has gone up a fair bit. You seem pretty comfortable around strategy, and you've, you've still got the European expansion um, coming along nicely. Has the opportunity actually improved now that you're more comfortable with Australia, or is the price sort of compensating for that? Uh, the price has gone up a lot. With the price mm. is up 30, 30, more than thirty percent since you recommended it, um, and that's partly because um, well, it's partly because they, I mean, they had um, the market hates profit downgrades, and they'd had basically five downgrades. Mm. The market just focuses on that, whereas what we tend to do is focus on well, um, okay, the market's had five profit downgrades now. If they have another one, the market already knows it's coming. So, and that's exactly what I think is exactly what happened. Um, and now the market's now focusing on the European growth opportunity. And Domino's has said yes, we think that the store rollout profile. In um, in uh, in France and Germany is actually only really just starting to hit its strides. Um, so that, there's some been some positive news. The market's now looking rather than focusing on the profit warnings. The market's are now now looking forward to to the actual growth opportunity. And that's what we, we thought is that at some point um, the growth opportunity would would come to the fore, and we think that's going to happen. So yeah, I, I, but I, despite that, I think the um, the business is perhaps better than I thought. I, I, I mean, it, yeah. it always takes you a while to. Um, even even though I've been looking at the Domino's business for more than a year now, um, it takes you a while to get comfortable with the business. As I said, with even with Webjet, um, and it, it, I, f- I think that the more I get, um, the more I look at the business, and more comfortable I get. And I just think they're now really the um, the partner of choice for Domino's US mm-hmm. and Domino's US in terms of granting territories. They're going to look at Domino's Pizza Enterprises, the Australian company, and say, look, th- these people know what they're doing. They, they've done it so well. Domino's in the UK is a bit of a not doing so well. Um, and um, so I, I think they're, they're really the partner of choice for, for Domino's US. Yeah, look, I must admit, James has been going on about Domino's for almost a year now when we first started mentioning it, and my reaction has always been, um, Domino's, no thanks. You know, I, I haven't really been interested, and uh, there's been, you know, I, I'm not sure about the other guys in the office, but certainly I've not really been interested very much. Um, and valuation sort of was really attractive when you upgraded, and that's what got it over the line. But having looked at the business in a bit of detail, you know, before I bought it, um, I was stunned yeah. by the quality of the business it's and how much business. cash flow comes out of there is extraordinary. The other thing probably worth shouting out about is the um, the quality of the management is yes. properly impressive. These guys, most of them have owned franchises or have been with the business a long time. They You, you look at um, how senior executives relocate and they, unlike, say, Woolworths with Masters and West Farmers with Bunnings UK, those companies didn't put a lot of effort in. They just put a little bit of capital and crossed their fingers and hoped everything would work. And when it didn't, they ran away. I really like that Domino's has picked a territory in, in, such as Japan that, that no one thought that would work. And they sent senior ex- executives who lived in Japan, lived and breathed the product for a long time. And when it wasn't working, they went back and tried to fix it. And they went back and tried to fix it. And after several iterations, it started to work. That shows me that management's actually really um, high quality, that they're willing to solve problems, not just cross their fingers and hope something works. And I think that's actually a great mm. point, Gaurav, is, is that they stick it out and they yep. do the groundwork. And it, yeah. it, it, you might think that selling pizza is an easy business, but it's not. It's no. different in every single market, and Japan is the perfect yeah. example. It's a very, very different market. And you need to understand local tastes, and mm. you need to, and there's a certain scale you need to get to. And so the, all these markets are very different, and they need to 
uh, put in place a lot of groundwork, and it's only and 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 the markets change. So as as the sort of a three hundred store market in France is going to be quite different to you know, when it has five hundred or yeah. seven hundred stores, and yeah. they, they'll do their marketing differently. They'll have um, they'll have different um, commissaries which actually do the dough in these markets, and so all these markets change and evolve. And Domino's uh, Pizza Management in Australia sort of knows that, and they do the groundwork and they stick it out. So I'm pretty happy with the way it's going. Yeah, and when it scales, it will scale really nicely in yeah. Europe once the store numbers get up. So. Mickey, get on yeah, to it. I still find it pretty amazing they're selling pizza to Italian people, but <laughs> <laughs> there you actually, go. yeah, I think that that's yeah. There's um, that's not Domino's Australia, but they oh, okay, they are rolling right. out in Domino's. I think I think that's the US business. Or I'm not sure exactly. But I was yeah. shocked to learn that France is one of the biggest fast food mm. consumers in the world. It's so amazing, isn't it? I think they're McDonald's' most profitable territory outside the yeah. US. And um, very big on, on pizza too. Yeah, it's, it shows you all your pre- preconceptions about exactly. a nation are wrong sometimes, yeah. yeah. Always look at the numbers and test. Yeah, that's right. Now, Mickey, you wrote up um, ARB well, about a week ago now, wasn't it? It's been a little while? Yep. More than a week ago. Anyway, you yep. wrote it up and um, you're getting close to upgrading that stock. This is a business we've had a long association with. We've been really successful with it for a long time. It's always been on the um, wish list of, of most of the analysts here, um, but we've never we haven't upgraded it in a in a long time, years in fact. Yeah. How close are we? Uh yeah. Well, it's beginning to look fairly attractive now. Uh, I suppose we're at a point now with new car sales, uh, having had a pretty terrible last 12, 18 months. I suppose mm. it's uh, overflowing from, um, you know, probably the the hangover from that correction in the housing market that we had. Uh, and that seems to be coming through now in kind of the growth results. Um, so this half uh, management said basically not to expect any growth, which is very unusual for a company that's grown earnings for, um, you know, a couple of decades pretty consistently. And So they're, they're attributing that to the car sales and a lag in that, are they? Yeah, so the, there's a couple of things. So there's the car sales and then there's also the low Australian dollar. So the low Australian dollar helps with their exports mm. and that's that's great. But um, also now they've just shifted a lot of manufacturing over to Thailand. And if, you, if, you, if, you tr- if you've been traveling in Thailand lately, you'd know that, that uh, um, the Thai bots appreciated quite, quite a lot. So the cost of their wor- workforce there is putting pressure on margins. So they've actually had sales growth, um, which is still pretty, pretty impressive. Um, Particularly, particularly in this market, uh, but but yeah, it's just that the margins are obviously getting getting hurt a bit. So, uh, hopefully, what will happen is that people it maybe gets a little bit worse before it gets better. People t- um, might ex- start to kind of extrapolate that that trend, and then hopefully we get an opportunity to to take a closer look at it. On multiples, Mickey, it doesn't it doesn't look particularly cheap for this kind of business it is it is a bit more capital intensive um than say a, a domino's um and the multiple is quite yeah high still is that is that a cyclical earnings s- situation or is that well because people haven't really it, it people are still optimistic about it yeah i mean it's on 24 times forward earnings so it's not not cheap and i mean if we were to upgrade it we wouldn't be expecting you know a 20 plus percent um return or anything mm. like that so i think it's kind of one of those stocks where you can kind of let the let the quality um, and the, the fact that the balance sheet as well is so clean, this company has lots of different growth options that they can uh, kind of explore. Um, and there's also there's also um, other things. So, you know, the fact that they own $150 million worth of property as well, um, which is, um, you know, throughout their, their store network as well. So that uh, tends to... Um, uh, make it make it look a little bit cheaper than that twenty four 
times multiple would be. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it is a business that's growing quite quickly overseas. Um, one of the things I guess I, I kind of struggled with originally when looking at ARB was just trying to figure out why this was actually a good business because um, when you look at it for the first time, you kind of go, this is just a manufacturer of car accessories Mm. Um, and they tend not to be very good businesses. Mm. Um, But what what you find over time is just that um, these guys have built, um, you know, all these parts and they've developed this amazing brand over that period. And uh, so now that that brand name, if you speak to four-wheel drive enthusiasts or you speak to anybody about four-wheel drive parts, it's kind of synonymous with quality and with, um, uh, you know, having the best parts. And I guess the other thing about it is that, you know, when you buy a new $80,000 vehicle or whatnot, then um, you're you're happy not to kind of, you know, skimp on on the bull bar that you put on the front or the air lockers or the suspension or something like that. So... Yeah, just that that share of mind, I guess, is kind of the thing that, um, yeah, that they've kind of got going for them, and um, you can see them kind of starting to export that to other markets now. You as well. you mentioned that that overseas, so I mean, how, how is that overseas going? Because obviously, when you take that to the market, a market like the US, they don't know the brand. So, um, is the do you get a feel for how that's going in the US scene? Yeah, so so far, it appears that uh, that that taking a slow and steady approach. So I think the way that management has always kind of approached these things is they would rather go slower than than they than they need to. Uh, so they kind of tend to go through, find a stockist, for example, get their stuff into a store, and then they'll kind of develop stockists over time. So um, instead of just having like a little um, section for ARB, over time they'll start to build out their product suite within an actual store. And what you see is over time, these stockists actually just become purely ARB dealers because they can offer the full product suite. And so that's kind of their expansion strategy. They said that they're growing. It's not just the US. um, It's also Asia. Uh, They're quite big in in Thailand. Uh, It's the Middle East as well. Um, So they seem to have an approach that that works. I think management also goes about it in the right way. Um, they're, They're not trying to grow too quickly. They're not overextending themselves. They're not taking on debt. Um, That's extraordinary, actually. The, the growth that the business has had, when you look at the balance sheet, it's never taken on debt. It's all kind of come from internally generated cash flow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and they, they do have to put in, um, you know, every time they want to grow, they have to buy more inventory. So mm. it is it is, can be quite a capital-intensive business. Um, but there's other things that they can do as well that it's it's hard to kind of compete with them. So, for example... They've just got the scale now where they can invest a lot of money in developing the next generation of products, um, but also, uh, you know, just ordering cars before they're actually on the market to actually equip them so that as soon as that car hits the market, they've got a whole product line ready to go, um, whereas like a smaller competitor, it would be quite hard to do that. So, And in Australia, they've grown by actually launching their own retail stores as well, correct? Yeah, yeah. Is, are they? Is that unique to Australia? The retail model? Are they going to? Do you think at some stage open become a retailer yeah. overseas too? I think that that's definitely possible. I don't think they'd do that at this stage. Mm. Um, so yeah, but I think it's definitely a possibility in the future. And finally, Mickey, can you talk to us a little bit about cyclicality in in Australia, where it's quite mature? I imagine mm. this is a more cyclical business. But should this the sales cycle for cars, which globally, by the way, has been quite low. Um, should that worry us too much um, uh, you know, when, you, when you look at the international yeah. opportunity? Yeah, so there's a few things here. So I guess 
on the, on the cyclicality side, it's definitely a cyclical business. So the amount of new car sales that they that we get, you know, broadly speaking, is obviously going to determine to some extent the amount of equipment that you get put onto the new four-wheel drives. Um, but there is also a, a big market for just replacing these parts on mm. used vehicles as well. And I, it's hard to determine actually what percentage of business that is, but I'd say it's a it's a fair 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 amount. So uh, yeah, so it's not as cyclical as you you might actually think. Mm. The other thing. I would say about Arb is because um, because they don't take on debt or anything like that. You know, the cycle could actually leave them in a better position competitively over the next ten to twenty years. Because you know, if if they've got smaller competitors that can't ride that out, um, they can be aggressive. They can expand. They can make acquisitions, and they can do things in a downturn that hopefully should set them up better over the long term. So, I think the cycle is probably the the friend of this business over the long term. Um, and then I guess just the other thing on on that on that point would be uh, that um, uh, so we've seen you know big run up in uh, four wheel drives as a percentage of actual vehicle sales. Uh, so whether and I I, th- I can see reasons why that might actually be here to stay because people are finding that you know this is actually gives them access to a lifestyle that. Um, you know, you can't get without a four-wheel drive. So people now pack up their families, they're going out camping, you know, for the weekend and, um, you know, so having access to that that lifestyle as well and just more room, especially when people start to have kids and things like that. So, so I don't like um, SUVs at all, <laughs> but I was listening to um, an, a car executive, I think it was from BMW, I'm going to say, but I'm not 100% sure. But he was saying that... Um, that uh, yeah, he he agreed. He was saying that um, this move to SUVs, he reckons, is absolutely permanent. He says the um, efficiency, the packaging efficiency of a sedan body shape is mm. just in, inherently inefficient, yeah. and that to get more um, space in um, into the boot and also to in to free up interior space, mm. the um, SUV body style is just more efficient and it makes more more sense. So For sure. um, BMW has just moved all the way towards, uh, they're basically an SUV business. I think more than 50% of sales are SUVs now. Mm. I think that's true for most car makers. Yeah. I, I think what you're seeing is just that that middle size of the market is what's making way. So the small, very small size, you know, for zipping around the city or yep. around the suburbs, that mm. that's fine. And then the four drives, obviously that's doing well, but um, it's kind of, yeah, as you mentioned, the this mid-sized sedan, it's um, kind of making way. So... It's a great shame. Yeah. All right, Mickey, um, you've got your eyes on that. So you'll just quickly run us through the um, – what's the upgrade price on that one? $17 uh, at the moment, um, I okay. think, off the and top of my head. No. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's right. I think it is Yeah, it's so, somewhere around yeah. there. But, um, yeah, so we'd probably give that a little bit more space uh, before before we upgraded. We're not kind of in any massive rush, but hopefully it's a business. So we get an opportunity to, to um, uh, buy okay. at some point. Yeah, Mick, we'll, Mickey's all over it. All right, we better leave it there. Gentlemen, thank you very much for joining me. JG, thanks for your time. Thanks, Gaurav. Mickey, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Gaurav. For everyone else, thank you for listening.